Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Jen has doubled the performance of APIs operating at rates of over 10,000 requests per second and led petabyte scale data analysis operations, saving millions of dollars per year. Jen has experienced at nearly every level of the stack from user-facing applications down to and including silicon. Jen earned her highest honors or the highest honors in her degree of Bachelor of Science in Computer Engineering at UC Santa Cruz. In her free time, she enjoys designing systems ranging from electronics for interactive fire art to thriving zero water use native gardens in the desert. Um, Jen, great to have you on the Second Command podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And I have no idea what that means about the um, <laughs> doubling performance of APIs operating. So I think you need to give us a, a little bit more of a layman's terms on what that stuff means, but also <laughs> tell us about Trustworks as well, the company that you're COO of, just so we know who you are. Yeah, so... Um, so that bio, I was lazy, and, and this is the one that I've had for years. Um, I shifted roles from uh, engineering capacity to operational capacity about a, a year and a half ago. Um, so so that, that is targeted towards my previous, my previous work. Uh, it, it really, you know, a lot of the work that I did previously um, uh, involved looking at, you know, performance optimization and, and designing um, scalable systems that could handle uh, arbitrary amounts of load and that kind of thing. Okay. And so an example of, of what that means, though, because like, again, you're in the technical and the engineering side, is that like you're pulling data in from, from one side and pushing it out the other for users or? Yeah. So for an example, uh, I'm trying to not, you know, it's, it's, this is my yeah. water. So it's really hard for me to like get the sure. right version layer. Um, but uh, so, um, as an example, I, one of the projects I worked on was a uh, big data pipeline, so processing mm. medical records. Got it. Okay. Um, so in this case, taking medical records from like lots of different providers with different kinds of electronic formats, yep. getting them into um, a data pipeline where then uh, analysis could be performed of those records, you know, and machine learning kind of stuff yep. Yep. <laughs> to then derive um, useful information to... Um, to make predictions about the data or to make, yeah. you know, assessments about the data. Got that it. Kind of thing. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that makes sense. It's, it's funny. Cause I'll, I'll used to explain, I used to run a, a private currency company, kind of what Bitcoin is today. We ran one 20 years ago and I was at the border having to explain this. And I realized like I needed to really, really simplify it very quickly or the guy was going to lock me up and throw away the key when he just <laughs> didn't understand. <laughs> He's like, wait, you're, you're what you're printing money. I'm like, yeah, no, I got to rephrase this question here or this yeah. answer. Um, okay, so you went. You were actually one of the three co-founders of Trust, correct? That's right. Yeah. And so maybe walk us through what you, the three of you, were thinking when you started the organization and what Trust does, and then we can kind of go in from there. Yeah. Uh, so when we first started Trust, we, the three of us um, all had decided that we wanted to build a company that was the kind of company that we wanted to work at. Uh, and coincidentally, all decided to, you know, we were all the same previous company, all decided to leave within a year of each other. Um, and 
just kind of ended up finding each other through the network and like, boy, I'm looking for a co-founder who's available, you know, looking around and um, we all were familiar enough with each other's work to to, like have respect for each other's work and have some sense of working style. Um, And it was enough to try something out. Okay. And then trust itself. What does trust do for their products and services? Yeah. So uh, we've evolved over the years. We started as a product company and now then we began, um, we evolved into a consultancy. So we are uh, currently a consultancy that is building, uh, building software products for clients and our primary markets right now are in uh, the government space. And we also do quite a bit of work in um, healthcare uh, and we're doing some work with, uh, large data, large databases of genomes as well. So, um, but it tended, the tendency tends to be application uh, environments where there's a high, high need for um, security and um, correctness and the ability to ship, ship quickly, basically. Interesting. Okay. So curious on how you decide as a company to evolve from a product company to a service company, what, what kind of discussions were happening at that stage or at those stages? Mm, That's a good question. Uh, So when we began as a product company, we built a product. um, It was a iOS application uh, called leave now. We, uh, it was literally just would look at your calendar and when it, it would look, do things like look at your mode of transportation, how much of advanced notes you wanted to, before you left, um, <clears throat> and you know, look at real time traffic conditions and figure out when do you have to leave and give you a little notification, um, you That's know, awesome. 10 minutes ahead or whatever, you know, uh, and the, the, it was actually a, a feature that ended up getting built into iOS and Google huh. natively huh. later. Uh, but at the time it didn't exist. And so we, we built that, um, we had a go of it. There were all sorts of things that we hadn't figured out yet about how to run a good business. And there are all sorts of things that, you know, were not working great about the product, but Mm. long story short, we ended up, um, we ended up doing consulting work in the meantime to bring in some cash. Uh. Yeah. Since, you know, we were, uh, we didn't have any revenue at that time. And uh, we, we for about I think a year and a half or so we tried to make the product work and after about a year and a half we looked at it, you know kind of had this come to Jesus of like well our money's coming from over here <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and you know we actually like sat down we gave ourselves a good month or so to we actually did this this exercise where we kind of really um, uh, thought through a whole bunch of different product ideas that we had that were lingering things that we thought we wanted to work on. We did some customer development kind of research. We like went and talked to people about um, if they had needs for these things and, you know, tried to figure out if there were markets for them. And mm. at the end of uh, that the month or six weeks or so, we had a, this like decision moment where we said, okay, you know, we, based on the data, <laughs> which way are we going? And we, we made that decision. That's interesting. I love the whole follow the money idea where you just saw it coming in. You kind of recognize all of a sudden that it's kind of easier to go down that path than it is to keep going down the path that maybe you started on. You then probably had to cut some people as well at that stage. Or We were only three people. At oh, you were still? We were just, okay. Mm-hmm. So that part was easier then? Yeah, we had uh, contractors that we were working with, but no employees. Okay, that's great. Yeah. So, um, so then you decide to go off and, and go into the consultancy side of things. How did the three of you decide who was going to do what? Had that already started to evolve over the uh, the, the first 18 months? 
to start with, as a consultancy, uh, myself and my co-founder Mark are the two engineers on the team. Um, and to start with, we were leading projects. You know, it was out of it completely just um, out of necessity of how you run. You know, like the economics of the company and our expertise. Mm-hmm. You know, our expertise was in running projects. So that was what we did to start with, and then Everett held on the fort. <laughs> you know, did all the biz ops stuff um, and 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 sales as well. Okay. And then um, as things progressed and we began to grow, then that began to shift. Got it. Okay. I want to go back as well to when you were still, the three of you were working in that company and just talk about what, what your experience was. So you were working at a former company and then you decided to quit and do this entrepreneurial thing. <clears throat> what was going through your mind to be able to do that? Because that's a huge shift that 97% of people never actually ever make. Mm-hmm. So the shift kind of started in a way uh, about four years earlier when I was, um, I had just started a new role at a new company and I'd had for a number of reasons, which I won't get too deeply into. Um, I had decided to, that I was going to like go, you know, all in and uh, re-examine all of my preconceptions about what my job was in my career. Mm. Um, and I did some research on um, like looking for actually like, original research on, on, um, what, what constitutes a sex, successful engineering career. And it was, I was really surprised to find, uh, research talking about, um, actually the, the top three skills in this particular body of research were from, it was from Bell Labs actually, was, uh, number one was initiative number as a skill that, yep. that would yield yep. good results number two was uh was actually leveraging other people's work Ooh. which was interesting mm. um never it occurred to me that that was the thing that was important and then the third thing was self-management oh interesting yeah um the self-management also ties into introspection right i think as well where you blame yourself instead of others for something Kind of, you look, you look yeah. for your own contribution to a problem versus yes. blaming the outside world, right? Yes, that's very true. It's so true. Um, yeah. So you saw those three traits in yourself then, or was well, it? N- no, oh. no, actually, I thought I didn't have them. I thought, oh. well, as self management, I had, but the first two I didn't. Okay. Um, and not the way I needed to. And so, um, actually, what happened is I set about to build those traits. Oh. And so I started at the top of the list and I worked one at a time building habits around mm. them until, until I wasn't, was doing them without thinking about it. Um, and uh, first, I started with initiative and I like, spent a like, three month time where every task that I did every day, the first question I would ask is, how can I use more initiative in this task? Mm. Amazing. Uh, and then by the end of three months, I did it constantly without thinking about it. Um, then for the next three months, I did, uh, you know, how can I leverage somebody else's work for this? Um, and then uh, at the end of that, you know, training myself to do that, I began naturally thinking about the business holistically that, uh, that, that I was working in holistically. Working yeah. um, since, you know, in order to take more initiative in something, you have to have a lot of context. Um, you have to go and learn why something matters and like what the dependencies are, and, you know, and so as I began doing that, I began thinking about, okay, well, like, what are the things that really matter for the business and trying to understand those deeply. And by, uh, I, and for the first maybe two or three years of the business, I was, I was okay with, with where the business was heading. And by the time we got to the fourth year, I began to be strongly misaligned with what the leadership was doing. Mm. 
Right. Um, and to be fair, the leadership changed twice in that time. Okay. Um, uh, CEO literally changed twice. Uh, and so, uh, uh, by, you know, by the fourth year I was strongly misaligned and at the same time with all of these like initiative and like, you know, thinking about the business things that I've been doing, I had really strong ideas about what I thought the business should do. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of looked at the situation and, and evaluated as like, well, chances are that the only way I'm going to be able to do these kinds of things in a business is by doing it myself. Wow. Okay. So you had that entrepreneurial seizure pretty there. Yeah. Were, and did you know what you were going to quit and do or did, was it just, I, I just need to go and then I'll figure it out? Uh, it was, I, w- I knew what kind of business I wanted to build. Okay. As in uh, the kinds of behaviors, the kinds of environment, the kinds of outcomes, but sure. nothing, but no idea about product. Yeah. You knew the kind of business, but not certain. Okay. Behaviors in the business. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so and what size was that company just roughly in terms of number of, number of employees? And then how many? Yeah, the previous company. Um, yeah. So w- when I joined, I think there were uh, about 150 and they went up to, I think, around 250. Then the layoffs went back down to like a little over 100 and grew again to 200, you know, so in that range. Okay, and then how many of you guys got now a trust? About 100. Okay, so... That's a pretty huge shift to go from the 100, 250 person company to quit and go back to a, a group of three for a year or two. What was that like? Because there's not a lot of kind of COOs or even co-founders that have done that big ch- change for such a long period. You, now you're back into a zone that you're probably more comfortable mm. in with lots of people. What was it like for the first <laughs> couple of years? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm actually, I was actually really comfortable in a three-person company. Oh. Um, uh, yeah, I think that, that that part of that is the degree of comfort I had with my co-founders. Um, yeah, pleasure to work with. Um, yeah, we had, a, and so we had a really high degree of trust already before going into it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, like, there are a couple of stories that, that were, like, real, um, signifiers for me that that predicted that one of them was that uh when I first met Mark the CTO now uh, my first real like substantial interaction with him at work had him um me telling him that his design was bad um and he was senior to me by the way me telling him that that his design was bad and then him saying you're right (laughs) Um, you know, and it had this moment of like, oh, this guy's huh. good. Did did you have always have that confidence to speak out all the way along, or was that something that be, that you learned and have groomed? I know. I would say it's a virtue and a flaw that it was always there. It's really powerful. I, I, I've I've probably very loosely and inaccurately described it as as having Tourette's at times. I feel like I'm on the spectrum for Tourette's, which is includes thinking out loud, and I don't really have a filter, so I just say stuff, but people actually really highly trust that because we don't hold back. We just say what we feel, feel what we say. And, and sometimes later we go, Oh shit. But it's, I think there's something really endearing about that in the leader. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why you've been so good in your role. Would that be accurate? Oh, it's interesting. Um, or would you say it's a curse as well, right? Well, so the, the, uh, I think, I think it can be, um, asset and a curse for me. I think it depends on partly what you say mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when you just say your mind. And for me, it's often, um, I, like highly analytical mm. and some people love that and some people hate it. 
So it, I have to I have to figure out how to modify for the, that for the audience. Makes sense. Yeah, I've got a friend of yeah. mine who's an engineer. I, I kind of get that sense from him too. Yeah, mine is often fueled by if I had had any drinks and then I'm like, oh, I think I regretted that one later. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it comes out with too much passion that I didn't really intend it to come out with. And then it's like, yeah. well, I don't, I don't know what that was all about. Right. So you talked to something that I was really intrigued with around the building of habits. I'm going to flag that because I think it was a really, there were some really interesting thoughts related to how you identified habits that were going to be good for you as an entrepreneur and then habits that you had to work on. And then you figured out how to actually build those habits. What, what habits are you working on today or what skills are you working on with yourself today? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. So right now, um, I, I usually have like, you know, one main priority that I'm working on at work. And then I also have like a kind of like an overarching theme of something that I'm studying and trying to get better at. Mm. Uh, and so the theme that I'm working on at work right now um, is developing our, our strategy proficiency as a company. So that's the, the, the theme, but that's more like, you know, gathering a lot of data, doing a lot of research, sure. you know, turning that into something that is useful and actionable for the team. Um, then from the personal development side, uh, one of the main things that I'm working on is getting better at, uh, it's what, it's what I, I've learned to call going onto the dance floor. Uh, so this is a piece of a really awesome metaphor that Christina Harpridge gave me, uh, which is, she calls it laying down a beat. Hmm. And she's, it's this notion of let's, <clears throat> the story is you go into, um, you go into a wedding and there's a really great DJ and he plays a record that everybody's like, oh yeah, it's a good one. And they get on the dance floor and they start dancing. And then he, the next one comes in, it's just completely melds in like liquid yeah, yeah, smooth. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's grooving, getting really excited. And then all of a sudden, like and that DJ comes on and all of a sudden, like, you know, right. complete break in in the groove like all of a sudden everybody's just like just kind of melt loses you know walks away from the dance floor they kind of like don't want to be there anymore um and and so that notion of Mm. like figuring out how to like play the record that's going to get everybody dancing she calls laying down a beat and is that something you're trying to lay down a beat that's consistent over a year over two years over a week over a month or is it just what's the the kind of ongoing theme that yeah. So what what um what I'm personally working on is that in order to do the lay down a beat notion when applied to like an organization, it means um, talking, you know, communicating to your audience in a way that will resonate. Mm. So that when when they hear a thing that you, you know you're saying, a message that you're trying to convey, that they they start nodding along and feeling they can see themselves in that and identify with what you're saying in such a way that they feel like they're part of what you're saying. Um, and so the, the getting on the dance floor part of that is um, that in order to, to lay down a good beat as a DJ, you can't do that without dancing. Right. You have to get on the dance floor and dance and understand what it feels like mm. to have a good beat mm. in order to lay down a good beat. Um, and so the thing that I'm working on is um, getting better at getting on the dance floor and like, feeling the rhythm of the organization so that then when I need to um, say something or like have it, you know, communicate or understand even what they need to hear that, uh, that I have a better sense of how to connect with people. Can you describe what that beat of yours feels like? Or is that like asking someone to describe what 
having sex feels like. Like you can't. <laughs> like, you, like, can you? Are you the only one that can feel your beat versus? Or can you? Expl- no, no, that's you- no, that's the idea. Is that it, it should be something that's a shared experience. Okay. So the question is, like, how do you communicate something that becomes a shared experience? Like, could you describe it in a, could you describe it and it appears in a job description so people understand the beat they're going to walk into in the company? Does that, is that kind of what you're, where you're going with, with part of this or? Um, so let's I'm, see. I think I'm grasping yeah, you're, this. You're looking for like a, con- like a concrete example? Would that help? Uh, yeah. And, and wondering if you can actually describe it. Like, can you say this is the beat that I kind of. I'm laying down in the company or for myself that we go, Oh, oh okay. Sure. Well, there's, there's every communication is a beat of some kind. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a question of like, you know, how can people see themselves in, in what you're saying? But, um, you know, but there, there are kind of <clears throat> very intentional company beats that we lay down as an example for, um, uh, our, <clears throat> our company values, purpose, and vision. Um, we have, you know, we have a vision and we, we've, um, BHAG, you know, those things are beats sure. that we need to lay and we have to figure out how to talk to people about them in such a way that they resonate. Mm-hmm. So, and the vivid vision is kind of like that in a nutshell, right? That's what a vivid vision is for. Totally. Yeah. It's for you know, figuring out how to connect with people in a way that they can understand and really feel and sense. Right. And then when other people read it, they resonate with that. Exactly. So what's, so what what's, what's yours? Like, how do you describe Jen to us as a leader? How and I kind of get, uh, I get a feeling like you are exactly who you are right now too. Like, as I'm sitting, listening to you and, and um, we've got a little bit of video. Some of our listeners can't see the video, but I get a feel for who you are. And I spent a couple of times or days with you at the CEO Alliance. So I, I get a bit of a read on, are you the same at work or the same day? Yeah. <laughs> is there, is there anybody else? Like, are you the same with your friends too? I kind of get this feeling you would be. Uh, I try to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean. think th- I think that's when you really, that's the truth that comes out in us, right? Is when we're like, that's one of the things I've always liked about Christina is I first met her when she was speaking on a stage and then I've hung out with her personally and then I've partied with her and like, then I've seen her speak again and I brought her in as a speaker and she's consistently consistent. Like she's just always Christina. And then I even read her stuff on, on Facebook. I'll read her posts and be like, it's exactly who it's even in her same voice. She's authentic all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what the laying down a beat is as well as you deciding who you actually are and just showing up that way consistently? Oh boy. That's uh, it should be. Yeah. I, I think that that's, uh, I think that you're way more effective at doing it. If you, if you're thinking about authenticity um, and you know, that's something that I think that, uh, that's something that we've also been learning as a leadership team is how to be more authentic mm. while communicating to the company since, um, you know, there's, there's this balance, tight, yep. this kind of tightrope balance of needing to uh, make sure that you communicate the right information at the right granularity to the right people at the right time so that they aren't either motivated to like unnecessary panic or like, you know, with actions that aren't going to drive you forward, you know, whatever. So you have to have the right communications, but you also have to um, do that in a way that doesn't, it's not like fabricated. It's mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. overly constructed. And so that struggle of like how to remain authenticity while also like, try, you know, not, um, you know, communicating the right things at the right time, you know. That's- so I, I'm going to ask you a question that will, it'll unfortunately, well, I guess there's, there's going to be a date on this episode anyway, so it's going to date the episode, but we're, we're sitting in the midst of um, the coronavirus issue mm. right now. And, you know, they, they're canceling people coming into the U S and they're shutting down governments and um, 
shutting down schools and, and there's that, you know, there's a run on toilet paper, even on Amazon. How do you as a leader communicate with your team right now to keep business going forward, but also to be empathetic and to be, and I don't know where you lie in the spectrum of, um, of, I don't even know how to describe the spectrum of fear to re, to read rationality. Like how are you operating as a leader in this new, cause we haven't had to deal with this. Like, we haven't had to deal with anything like this. Yeah. that's a really good question. Um, so my, 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 um, co-founder Mark just gave an update this morning to the company. We have an all hands every Friday We're by the way, we're distributed. So it's all virtual mm-hmm. already, which helps. Um, but, uh, that, touched on a lot of points. Um, it was a very, a very delicate communication, you know, to, to talk about this kind of stuff. And one of the, uh, one of the things that he did that was really effective is um, he talked about, you know, some of the experiences that people are, are happening throughout the company and like some of the things they're having to contend with on like on a personal basis. Um, and then he talked about uh, a concrete, actions that individual people could be doing mm. in their day-to-day work um, that would uh, help either themselves or other people. Wow. Uh, huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then he, uh, you know, in, in uh, uh, very deftly tied that into some of the things that are actually good that are happening right now. Um, for our company, like there were some things that, you know, that some wins that people in our company had had recently. Um, and so um, celebrated some of those things uh, and, and then left it at that. And it, I think it was, um, it was an immensely effective communication. Yeah. 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 yeah interesting. I, I like the whole giving them some concrete things that they can do. I, I said something this morning publicly around around where we are right now i said right now leaders more than ever need to lead because there's you know the 97 percent that need to follow and that are looking to be led and it, there needs to be a voice of reason there needs to be a voice of calm there needs to be a voice of sincerity there needs to be a voice of humility there needs to be a voice of stability there needs to be a voice of, of action right of like here are some stuff and um it's a really interesting time right now as a leader for this and and some companies more so than others, like some, some are being, you know, impacted drastically, whether you're in the events business or, um, you know, running with large groups of people or whatever. Um, right. so on your learning journey as, as a leader, how do you start to decide what, and it sounds like you said you have kind of like one theme per year that you pick and, and one um, priority per year that you pick. How do you decide to pick those? And do they just come to you or is it kind of, is it like every January 1st or is it just happen in flow? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it started, to be honest, it's been, uh, I would say the way that we have done that has been through necessity historically, mm-hmm. as in, um, you know, when in the last couple of years, we doubled every year and certain strategic goals became just really obvious <laughs> you know and he was like oh fuck we, we have to excuse me i don't know if i'm to swear on this yeah okay um we have to do this or else we're fucked yeah you know like and, and so um you know as a consultancy one of our last our last thing last year was that we had one client at the beginning of the year that was 85 percent of our revenue whoa uh and 
furthermore, they uh, there was a lapse in their payment schedule due to an error in their database, but it it was a serious threat. Um, so you know, it became very clear that we needed to have a company that could withstand failures of a client to pay for longer periods of time than what we had previously planned for, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that was, you know. Yeah, that's a pretty scary one to have to course correct over. I'm thinking about the size of your company and maybe some of the lessons you can give us. I heard a saying or a concept years ago that it's about the ones and threes and that a company drastically changes at every three and one. So when you have three employees to 10, it's changed. And when you go to 30, it's changed. When you go to 100, it's changed. When you get to 300, it's changed. Um, or when you're at like a, you know, 100,000, 300,000, a million, 3 million, 10 million, 30 million, 100 million. Can you give us some of the the changes that you've seen over the years as you've scaled and how you've had to adapt as a leader? Mm, or do you, oh want me to walk you, do you want me to walk you through some specific questions about each stage even? Sure. That might be a little bit better because there's so many so, things. To, <laughs> yeah. So when you were, when, when you were three, when you were just the three of you, you were kind of figuring things out and, and acting as a team and, you know, kind of coming up with a plan, ready, break, talking constantly, whatever. When you have 10, somebody's managing some people and somebody's not, and somebody's got direct reports that don't really report to them. What changed for you at that point? And then what was the transition like that up to 30 when maybe you had a management team or some managers now with people that didn't even report to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for us, it was kind of three to 18. We, right. we, uh, once we decided to hire employees, we rapidly grew, um, to 18 and then we stayed there for a little while for a year or two, at least. Uh, and then, um, uh, you know, and changing from three to 18, the, one of the, you know, one of the big things was, um, uh, we we actually got our, did a really good job with our hiring processes right off the bat. Uh, we got I don't know we we're smarter, luckier, both or something. But the uh, um, it actually is largely the same now as what it was then, which is bizarre. But the uh, the some of our the employees that we were targeting were the wrong employees, and so um, insofar as we didn't realize how much support junior folks would need. Hmm. Uh, and so we were, um, we hired on a mix of senior and junior folks, but it was probably around like 50, 50, uh, maybe, maybe a little weighted towards the junior folks. And, um, we weren't able to support them in as much as they needed. We weren't able mm -hmm. to provide the, the training and the, um, uh, guidance and like just being there when they need somebody to be there, uh, at, to the level that was really necessary. Um, so that was a lesson we learned uh, and sure. we began to rebalance that within a couple of years. Yeah. And then as you scale, as you scale from that up to the hundred, then like a, now it's a completely different business, right? It is completely different. You've got, you've got employees walking in the door that you don't know their name. Um, you've probably got, you're, you're not really at the stage yet where you don't know what business area they're in, but you certainly don't know all their names. I have been, you know, in, it's actually just in the past few weeks, I've been surprised by a couple of names for the, I mostly keep track because we, right. we and partly because we have a we have an offers channel in Slack where all offers go, and so I usually see and like you know, but yeah, I missed a couple. <laughs> <laughs> you get some ongoing reminders. I, I yeah. had someone one time in an elevator. Um, Why well, had somebody recently at a conference 
And he said that he worked at 1-800-GOT-JUNK when I was there. I'm like, oh, what year? He said 2006. I'm like, oh, I was the COO for that whole six, six, seven year period. He goes, oh, I didn't, I, I don't, I didn't meet you then. I'm like, you don't remember me? He goes, no, I don't remember you at all. I'm like, how is it possible that you were one of the employees and you didn't know the second in command of the company? That's extraordinary to me. But you realize how big we, we were 248 people and, you know, at the head office and 3000 system wide, he had no idea who I was. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. strange. Has yeah. politics has politics creeped into your organization yet? Yeah, I mean, insofar as uh, you know, this is the thing that I, that I'm starting to see is um, people are further away in, in, in networks, and so it's more likely that they, they'll have stories in their head about what's going on. Mm. So uh, you know, we have to be more careful about what we communicate and how, so that it isn't misinterpreted. You just you just said a good point. I heard a saying years ago that in the absence of facts, people make up their own. Yes, exactly. And so so how do you communicate the the story that you want them to have in their mind versus the one that they're creating on their own? And how do you how do you recommunicate that? You know, so that it stays clear. So yeah, so this kind of falls into the um, you know it's interesting. It ties back into the laying down a beat thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one one of the ways. <laughs> that we try to understand what we need to be communicating is by listening. You know, so in, um, and luckily with Slack, it makes it easier to get a sense of like, get a pulse of what people are feeling and thinking about and worried about as you can see chatter in certain channels. Um, and we have a random channel we have a general channel. We have uh, a rage cage where people go and they're pissed. We have um, a wind That's channel where they go and they're happy. Yeah. What do you pick mm-hmm. up from the rage cage? Actually, I'm mostly glee and joy, which really? is weird because people are angry. Are they, are, are they sharing it in like a like an angry but funny way, kind of? Yeah, it's it's, it's a shared angst right. that's very cathartic. Right, right, right. Um, you know, and so, but yeah, it, I actually don't. Mostly, that's just like in catharsis and yeah. And, so it's like it's yeah. like I just spilled. It's kind of like the business equivalent of I just dumped my latte all over myself, and everybody kind of totally. has a good laugh. It's not. It's not raging totally. at somebody else about you're not taking your anger. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we go and yell at the other person. Cage match. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so when you talked a little bit about learning and growing, it reminded me of a client that I used to coach from Geneva. He would go on Harvard Business Review every quarter and look up Harvard Business Review articles or books that he should read tied to specifically what he was looking to learn this quarter. Is that how you've applied your learning as well in growth? It feels like you're not, you don't read a book for random. You, do you apply it for specific reasons? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I go into a new, um, area that I need to learn about, I do research on, um, on books and HBR is a good source. I also do, uh, I've learned to look for books recommended by, um, executive coaches. Mm. They often have good lists. Yep. Um, and, uh, actually that's where I found scaling up. Oh, interesting. Is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect book for your size too. Yeah, it's good. Uh, let's see. And then it turns out that scaling up is one of the best uh, resources I've found for references to other publications. Oh, well, Vern, because Vern is a, Vern's like a, a, an encyclopedia or a library. He's incredible. The, 
And he, in, like, very intentionally, it seems, refers yes. out, like, heavily throughout the book. Yeah. Like, you know, here's this, this thing that you need to work on, and then here's the book that talks about it. I'm not going to talk about it here. That, you know, that's like, actually one of, I think, Vern Harnish, who wrote Scaling Up, whose prior, pre- previous book was called Rockefeller Habits. His, his, I think what I've most known him for in 25 years has been that he doesn't actually try to take credit for the ideas as being his. He tries to take credit for curating the best ideas on business and then pointing back to those sources. So it's like, well, Pat Lencioni is the one for this, or Jim Collins is the one for that, or, you know, John DeJulius is the one for this. It's, it's really inter- intriguing to see how, whereas other thought leaders are always trying to package it as themselves. It's like, dude, I've mm. heard this five other times. I know it wasn't you. I know it was really like, you know, Vern's mm-hmm. done a good job with that, which I think gives more credibility to his tools. I have no argument. Um, yeah. I, I think that, yeah. Um, I, I mean, honestly, like, I think that, uh, you know, of the things that I've, the references I found in Scaling Up, they're probably like mm, a third that I had read, a third that I had my reading list, and a third I had never heard of. Right. Yeah, uh, for sure. Some are very, yeah. some are, are very eclectic. So at the size that you're at now and you're operating, are you largely in the Bay Area or mostly in the Bay Area or completely in the Bay Area? The company is distributed. We're in 20 states. Okay, you are. Um, okay. I, yeah. And is that, has that, so that, I guess, maybe even answers my question. My question was, how do you deal with the war on talent? Um, is, it, mm. is that now by being distributed, you're allowed to go get great people wherever they are versus trying to find them all in one zip code? That helps a lot. Yeah, being distributed helps a lot. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of people who want to work distributed these days. And then, of course, uh, yeah. And then, <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, of the coronavirus. Clearly, yes, of, yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, but then also, um, we are we are competitive from a salary and benefits perspective. But but aside from that, we've actually had really high acceptance rate on our offers because of the culture. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah. So how do you work on your company culture when you're distributed? What what are the different things that you're doing? Because largely what the media has mm-hmm. overreported in the wrong way has been all the perks. And that's not what culture really is. So how do you mm. guys build a great comp- company culture? That's interesting. Having, I just have to call out that like having worked at my current company, which I've been doing distributed for eight years and that my previous company actually was distributed as well. For four years, I've been doing distributed for twelve years, and just well, like, well, you know, it's normal, right? You know. Yeah. Um. So, uh, I don't actually think of culture as I think of it as very orthogonal to location. Um. The things I would do for culture, if I were co-located, are the same as what I would do in a distributed company. So um, give, us a, give us a couple. Example. Yeah. So, as an example, um. I mean, I, I think that a big part of the tone of the culture is set by the kinds of um, choices and trade-offs you make. And as an example, we one of the things that we care about at our company is um, that every person is is given an opportunity to do their best work. Mm-hmm. We don't want people to feel like they're being artificially like forced into a box where they are like you know aren't able to contribute something that they're really passionate about. You may be good at that's not fitting into that box. We uh, we want it, We want people to be able to to um, bring like their, their greatest offerings to bear in a work environment, since that's part of what's most fulfilling about work. We want work to be a fulfilling place. Totally. Uh, and so, um, whenever we um, make decisions about things, one of the things that we're looking at is um, like how does this empower people to do their work better? 
or to like have more autonomy in their work. Um, and so there are all sorts of little decisions all over the company that, um, that, in, that bring autonomy and uh, um, more freedom to the, to the individual. Um, like one example of that is that we have, uh, and I mentioned this at the COO Alliance meeting, but we have a, uh, an employee effectiveness budget every mm-hmm. month of 150 bucks per employee where employees can spend it on anything, anything at all that makes them more effective at their job. Yeah, I love that tool actually. So if they just think that they want a piece of software or they need a certain tool or they need a course mm-hmm. or something, you're just like, go for it, yeah. just spend it. Just buy it, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's mm-hmm. smart. I, I have, and I don't know why the, I feel this so, yeah, because I don't know the business that well or you that well yet, but I have a feeling like you guys have done a good job on the interview part of your people systems in terms of, of like interviewing and doing reference checks. Do, do you do a good job with that? And if, if you, if you are, what do you think you're doing well with that? Or what can we learn from that? I do love our, our hiring processes. Uh, and let's see, what are we doing? Well, so one of the thing there, there, I think there are at least there are three main components that I think are really key. Um, one of them is that we we require work samples for like a, a co-working session or a work sample from every employee. Mm, that's cool. So we really like see and understand the quality of their work. It's, we're not in, inferring, you know? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, and I, it, that's really important, actually. Um, that's been really key. Uh, and so the quality of the, you know, the actual technical quality of people's work is super high across the board. Um, then the, the second component that really matters is, um, we have a a really robust behavioral interview that focuses primarily on how people, um, work in a team and understands like things like if you are a senior engineer and there's a junior engineer on the team, how do you mentor that junior engineer? Like, is there ever a situation where you would think it's okay for you not to mentor, mentor that engineer? Right. Because we don't think it's okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, and so it's like, it's a requisite for when you walk in the door that you must be interested in mentorship. You must be mm. interested in, mm. in helping your team um, and uh, like have some under, uh, empathy for others and some d- uh, interest, understanding of collaboration. It's interesting. Yeah. What was and the then, yeah. Yeah. And so then the, the third thing is, um, uh, we have a, a strong technical interview as well. Um, but, but both. But but I love, where you, about, st- I love yeah. where you started where was behavioral stuff is first and then the technical yeah. is second. Yeah. So that we, we officially prioritize, like we explicitly when in our training documents for our interviewers, we, you know, the, actually the first thing we filter for is communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's things like, it's not just like, how can they formulate sentences? Well, it's, it's how well do they listen? Mm. Um, you know, and how well do they, um, are they able to be succinct and, and things like that, but are they able to really understand the intent of the person asking a question? Mm. Uh, so, so it's those kinds of skills. Um, so That's communications really cool. first. Well, and it's and yeah. you're putting that in place because it's clearly bothered you with some early stage employees or it's bothered you in past companies that it's now you need it to be able to operate, right? Or so it, we actually started with that, with those three priorities before we even hired a first hire. Perfect. So it was intent. It's great. Yeah. Um, and 
we just, you know, we actually in, in my particular, each myself, my two co-founders had different reasons for thinking that was correct, but we all agreed. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know, you're, you're totally on the right. Like the, the key was that you decided as a group of you as to what the people needed to be like. And then you started to find the people that were like that and who had the skills. I had someone the other day who was hiring a COO for about a hundred person company. And he said, he wants someone to hold people accountable. And I said, no, no, you don't. You actually want a COO who can lead accountable people. Like just hire a mm. bunch of accountable people. You don't need someone to hold them accountable. Hire people that are accountable for themselves and you're fine. Mm. Um, I have one, I could, could ask you questions forever because you're a genius and I'm intrigued with the business. The um, I've got one final question for you before we have to wrap is if you were kind of talking to your 22 year old self and leaning back and saying, you know, Jen, you're starting off on your career and giving yourself some advice. What advice do you wish you'd known back then that now you know to be true? What I'm thinking about is whether I would have listened. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. That's what I'm hoping is you listen to yourself. <laughs> that's a whole other right? question, right? Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, that, uh, Believe it or not, the the outcome is um, significantly more impacted by how well a team works together, mm. by who's right. Amazing. The whole one plus one equals three or five. Yeah. Yeah. The arguing to be right. I've, I, that's, I've struggled with that for a long time. I think I've gotten past most of it now. Jen Leach, the COO and founding partner of Trust. Thank you very much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. That was great. Thank you. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.